what happened in Hong Kong unfolding right in front of our eyes、uh, is that it's basically previewing what could have become Taiwan's future if Taiwan have chosen a party that is advocating for closer ties with China. Welcome to another episode of the post-pandemic order. My name is Julie Smith, and I'll be your host for this episode. I run the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our guest today,、uh, who is in Taiwan、uh, at a very late hour. William Yang, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So William is a journalist based in Taiwan. He is the East Asian correspondent for Deutsche Welle,、uh, the German outlet. In 2018, he started freelancing for a number of outlets to cover events in the region, and he also, in 2013, launched a new startup called the. Katagalan Media, which was based in the United States, you studied in the United States, and we're so pleased to have you today because there's a lot to talk about in your neighborhood. So again, thanks so much for joining us, particularly at such an odd hour. No, thank you for having me on、uh, the podcast, Julia.、Uh, it has been an honor to be here and share a lot of the things that's been happening in Taiwan and also、uh, the surrounding region because we've seen a lot of、uh, new developments happening here. Great. So we're going to jump in, and I've got a thousand questions for you. I'll probably limit it to just a handful. We'll have a bit of a moderated discussion, and then I want to know. I want folks、uh, who are watching and listening to know that on this live podcast, they have the opportunity to ask questions. You can just type something in the Q and A box, and we'll keep an eye on that throughout the podcast and draw from some of the questions there. So, William, we've got a lot of ground to cover. It probably won't surprise you that I want to start、um, with Hong Kong. You and I met actually in Berlin last fall when GMF was hosting an event over there, the Taiwanese Trilateral that we host regularly. And I remember you talking about all the time that you were spending in Hong Kong at that moment, covering the protests and providing us with some really interesting insights. Fast forward now to today, months later, and of course we're in a completely different world as it relates to Hong Kong. We have a situation where new national security、uh, laws have been passed that are going to have a major impact on some of Hong Kong's unique freedoms. The reaction has been. Quite fierce from around the world, but I guess I have a lot of questions on Hong Kong. But I, I, I want to start with kind of how Taiwan is looking at events in Hong Kong, and what what has been the reaction? What lessons are you drawing from this, and how worried are you about the possibility that this is previewing what could come in your corner of the world? So let's start there. And again, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, sure.、Uh, so I think we have to start again with the anti-extradition bill protest that started last June, because of the very interesting timing that the whole protest started basically six months be- before Taiwan headed to the poll for a very important presidential election. So the whole protest over the last、uh, year basically became a preview and also an 
I would say it, it, it's kind, it kind of like escalated and triggered a lot of the voter participation in Taiwan. And it also became a very dominant and dis, dis defining issue for candidates on both sides of the presidential election to use it as a way to angle and also anchor their arguments. And what happened in Hong Kong unfolding right in front of our eyes, uh, just across, you know, the, 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 uh, an ocean is that it's basically previewing what could have become Taiwan's future if Taiwan have chosen a party that is advocating for closer ties with China. And so because of the, uh, call out actually from the Hong Kong civil society for Taiwanese people to pay attention to what's happening there and how the Hong Kong government and also Beijing were responding to it. The result of the election was basically a reflection of what how the Taiwanese civil society was uh, viewing and also their uh, opinions about it, which is that the uh, pro-Taiwan uh, status quo and also pro-Taiwan sovereignty of uh, President Tsai Ing-wen won an historic high votes during the election, which was unthink of uh, heading into the poll because, in fact, uh, when she announced that she's going to run for re-election, she was falling behind double digits in the poll. But, you know, because of the whole event in Hong Kong, it really dramatically switched the entire momentum in the Taiwan election. And uh, we can just already see how the close ties and also like how uh, like anxious Taiwanese people are viewing what's happening in Hong Kong. And uh, this time around, uh, fast forward to May, when Beijing announced its plan to actually impose and pass this uh, national security law, and again, bypassing all the legislative uh, institutions and also uh, in, in Hong Kong, the Taiwanese people, again, immediately were zeroing in about all the details, including the effect of the law and also the way that Beijing was handling it and passing it, and also uh, how it is going to dramatically change the uh, essence and the DNA of the Hong Kong society. And once the law passed and on the first day that it came into effect, hundreds of people, over 300 people were arrested on a July 1st uh, march that had been a tradition in the city for decades uh, since the handover, because that was the day uh, that Hong Kong people wanted to remember, uh, you know, the historic importance of that day. But instead, this year, uh, the police just decided to enforce the law and arrest the uh, hundreds of people, a lot of them being arrested uh, simply for being right at the scene, not even part of the protest. And some of them, more than a dozen of them being charged under the law, most of them were carrying only flags uh, that, you know, uh, have uh, these popular protest slogans uh, calling uh, the uh, basically revolution of our time. And so that is uh, the dramatic change and dr draconian uh, effect of the law that Hong Kong people have to deal with now. And our team over here in Taipei, in fact, uh, went onto the street to do a very quick uh, vox pop to really, uh, you know, examine the response from the Taiwanese society. And what we got is that most people are now very concerned about even their personal safety just because of, again, the power of the law and also the entire uh like extent that china is going to go by interpreting the vagueness of the actual clauses in the law and uh it it, it is very very different from the uh, uh common law system that hong kong used to have and according to legal scholars that i've been talking to over the last few weeks they think this is the final puzzle for beijing to implement the so-called one country one system 
to Hong Kong, which ended the entire uh, promise and also the model that uh, China promised when uh, the UK handed Hong Kong back to China in 1997. Now, the reaction has been quite vocal and strong from not just the United States, but we've seen uh, our friends in Europe um, speak up quite loudly uh, about this, uh, some proposing action, some taking action. We saw the United Kingdom offering a home for those fleeing Hong Kong. What's your perception from where you sit on the world reaction? Were you expecting more? Is there more to be done? Is there something that you feel should be happening that is not happening right now? Give us a sense of how you're reading the world's reaction to this. So I think what is really obvious is that the U.S. has already taken a lot of the initiatives to uh, push for very strong responses uh, by including ending the special uh, status that Hong Kong has, which already, you know, uh, sent shockwaves right. through yeah. the region. Uh, but at the same time, in European, the European Union is taking a lot, uh, you, you know, a very conservative and also cautious steps towards that because Germany, the uh, president of the European Commission and also the largest economy in the bloc has, has openly expressed that they have no interest of harming, you know, completely harming the ties and relationship with China on the issue of Hong Kong. So uh, right now, they're, what they're considering is some, you know, like export bans and also at the same time, uh, enlarging, uh, offering more uh, visa for Hong Kong people and make it easier for them to actually stay and work or uh, study in Germany. So these are, I think, uh, more based on the so-called humanitarian basis kind of like offer, but at the same time, a very cautious uh, calculation from the European side to not entirely sabotage their relationship with China, because again, the economic uh, relationship with China is very important for the European Union. And Coming back to the region in Asia, Taiwan is probably the uh, top destination. A, a recent poll and survey showed that most of the uh, Hong Kong people, in fact, uh, choose Taiwan as their top destination if they are thinking about immigration. And the Taiwanese government have been pushed by the civil society here to actually uh, show a very strong stance. So what they did is that they set up an office called the Taiwan uh, Hong Kong Service and Exchange Office. And what this office does is that it is actually going to offer a case-by-case a very careful evaluation, but also assistance to any Hong Kong people uh, ascending in their application, either for uh, like investment immigration or for it's purely uh, needing some support to come here and study. Uh, the office uh, function is to uh, offer a very tailored and also customized uh, support on a case-by-case basis. But at the same time, what the case-by-case mean is that the Taiwanese government is taking a very cautious move, again, to evaluate and review the background of each candidate because there is a risk that the government here believe that some Chinese people could be posing as Hong Kong people because if they live there long enough, they could have the Hong Kong status. And that could potentially expose Taiwan to, let's say, uh, the infiltration from uh, Chinese spies. Interesting. So what the government here is trying to do is that they want it to offer 
enough support, but at the same time, they wanted to be cautious not to make Taiwan fragile to an influx of Hong Kong people that they don't have control over who comes in and who don't come in. But again, this is a very polarized issue right now in Taiwan because of the fact that part of the more progressive uh, side of the society thinks that the government should just offer a very sweeping kind of uh, almost asylum mm-hmm. type of uh, assistance to Hong Kong people because of the potential amount of Hong Kong people that will be thinking about, uh, you know, uh, immigrating. But at the same time, the government here also knows that if they pass the so-called asylum law, that in a way would change Taiwan's status in China's eyes. Because, you know, if you are offering asylum to uh, people from other countries, that's de facto announcing that you're an, a sovereign country. And that, in China's eye, is a, the red line that Taiwan should never cross. And the government here, the president, Tsai Ing-wen, she has been known for taking very cautious steps on these very, very risky and also sensitive issues. So that's the step that she has not been very openly and willingly expressing her stance on. Interesting. So switching now to cross-strait relations, um, we've seen kind of an escalation in rhetoric quite recently, which seems to be cyclical, but we seem to be in a in a valley, so to speak, and on cross-strait relations. We've seen not just the rhetoric change and become quite hostile. We've seen some talk of, you know, military reunification between China and and Taiwan, um, the PRC. We've also seen um, reports of the work report for the MPC came out and had a very interesting omission, and that was the word "peaceful" as it referred to reunification. So. I wanted to get your take. I mean, that obviously from where we sat, sit, we read that with considerable alarm. I assume that's the case where you sit as well. But tell us a little bit about how you're reading the situation right now in cross-strait relations. Should we be kind of you know, are we in a situation where the lights are blinking red? Is this overstated because of those peaks and valleys in the relationship? I mean, how do you how do you read the situation right now? I think Beijing is definitely a lot more impatient and also they're feeling very anxious about how to deal with the Taiwan issue because, again, of what has been happening in Hong Kong. And they really felt like what's happening in Hong Kong could become a catalyst in Taiwan in a way that it encouraged and actually uh, push more people who used to be maybe the uh, middle ground voters to become a lot more uh, supportive and at the same time, uh, uh, like, like more, more like uh, strongly aligned with the so-called Taiwan sovereignty's uh, like position. So that's also one of the reasons why they have been, in fact, launching a series of very provocative military moves. Uh, there have been over a dozen fighter jets being sent into uh, the uh, area w- w- where, you know, it- it's cl- very close to Taiwan's airspace, but it's not, in, in fact, uh, entirely in Taiwan's airspace, but it's close enough that they could strike Taiwan if they want to. And uh, this, the frequency of that has really uh, increased a lot over the last uh, few months or weeks, in fact. Uh, and also at the same time, uh, the rhetoric, like uh, what you just mentioned uh, during the MPC, is that 
the very specific goal of uh, using military uh, to reunify with Taiwan if necessary has been uh, raised more and more frequently during these very important occasions in China. But interestingly, back in Taiwan, people are not really being panicked about all these uh, potential signs because and uh, to be honest, people in Taiwan have been living under that threat for decades. Uh, even in 1996, during the first presidential election, there was, in fact, a missile crisis that, you know, they fired a missile as a warning for the first uh, direct presidential election and nothing happened. So for the Taiwanese people here is that they are, uh, especially the younger generation, they're ready to go to fight if it's necessary. But what they are very determined now is that they know they need to support leaders here in Taiwan, politicians here or political parties here that who are very committed to uh, representing Taiwan's interests and also defending and safeguarding Taiwan's interests rather than bowing to, you know, China's uh, pressure at the international stage, which in fact is also creating a lot of the uh, interesting political dynamic uh, that we have been seeing over the last few months. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to insert a, a question here from one of our listeners. Um, so someone did want you to say a little bit more about um, China's presence in Taiwan, what that looks like, how powerful. Could you say a few words about that? Sure. What chi China's presence here is mostly through some very uh, pro-unification political parties or organizations here uh, to use their very local grassroots level infiltration through a uh, local temples and local uh, organizations. They organized like tours, in fact, uh, for smaller villages to China, uh, you know, on, on the under the name of like cultural exchange that had been happening for decades, in fact. Uh, but after the media here started to expose these tactics, they slowly and gradually moved their targets online. Uh, whereas we see a lot of the United Front uh, campaign during the 2018 local election, which was in fact a pretty successful operation for them because uh, the pro, the more pro-China party, uh, Kuomintang, in fact, uh, won a landslide election at the local level. They turned a lot of the previously dominated by the uh the more pro-Taiwan sovereignty parties, uh, like counties around. So that, again, that election somehow raised the alarm. And so the Taiwanese people and Taiwanese uh, institution and government began to look into the so-called fake news effect coming from China. And these research and also the government set up a, a so-called fact-check center to flag all these like potentially very harming uh fake news coming from China. Oh, it, it showed their effect again in the 2020 election where a lot of these uh like election-related fake news got debunked right before the election got started and the uh, effect of the China operation then become very limited. Right, yeah. Okay, we've got some good questions here, but I'm gonna ask you one final question of my own. I did wanna get to the Uyghurs and talk about that just for a minute. Um, obviously, there's been some breaking news on that front, increasing revelations about CCP actions that they're taking against the Uyghurs. It's certainly gotten the attention of the US Congress, as well as other uh, national capitals around the world. Just curious how um, Taiwan looks at this situation, the ongoing very tragic story 
about the, you know, abuse essentially that this community is going through, but also very interested in kind of how Taiwan looks at the digital surveillance piece, which is such a big part of how the CCP is managing, controlling, um, intimidating this population. So would welcome your take on that. And then I'm going to switch to some of these great questions that are coming in. Right. Uh, so I think what's happening and unfolding in Xinjiang since 2017 uh, is also being uh, viewed as a warning, a pre-warning for a lot of what could happen if Taiwan decides to unify with China. Because uh, what we see is a whole group and ethnic minority that are being uh, detached from their culture and also their religious identity. And in the eyes of Taiwanese people, they view uh, what Taiwan has been pursuing pursuing and also living with as probably 100 times even more threatening than what the Uyghurs were doing in Xinjiang to Beijing. So a lot of these news uh, were immediately picked up by local media and a lot of the attention were being given to uh, the persecution of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and people were really, a, a lot of the like talks organized by student groups or like civil society groups and uh, several Uyghur uh overseas Uyghur uh, activists were invited over to Taiwan to also give topics and talks on, on, on similar things. And Taiwan's parliament, in fact, also started a group who, you know, campaign and champion uh, all the related uh, topics, not only just on the Uyghurs persecution, but also Tibetans and Hong Kong. There is, in fact, an alliance of uh, uh, legislators in the legislature now uh, dedicated to uh, raising awareness about these issues. So what I think uh, all these issues Hong Kong, Tibet, and uh, Xinjiang, and uh, China's way of surveilling the citizens in these uh, parts of the region, and also the tactics that they use to really control and strengthen their, in fact, uh, control over these population, is that these are all being read as, you know, signs and reminders to Taiwanese people that if they want to maintain their way of life, they need to make sure that they uh, come out to exercise their democratic rights of voting. And at the same time, they need to become more vigilant and also smart and sensitive and aware about what China is in fact launching against Taiwan, which is all kinds of different infiltration campaigns and become smarter about, you know, tr what kind of information should be trusted and what kind of information should be clearly flagged as, uh, you know, fake news coming from China. So, and these uh, awareness and educational stuff have been going on because of uh, what happened exposed in Xinjiang, but also in Hong Kong and Tibet. Yeah. Okay, great. And that gets a little bit to your question, Hiro. I can see you were interested in this question of, you know, the measures that Taiwan is adopting on, on disinformation to counter disinformation. So, okay, so we've got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to just jump in. So we've got Tina Chung, um, who reports for Voice of America in the China branch. She said, we just learned that Hong Kong has been placing the one China principle as a condition for issuing visas for Taiwan officials working in Hong Kong, given the latest situation tied to the national security law. It's only going to get even harder for Taiwan to have some kind of footing in Hong Kong. How do you see the working relationship between Taiwan and the Hong Kong government evolving? More broadly, how would Beijing use Hong Kong as an example for its future plan on Taiwan now that one country, two systems model is tested and widely rejected in Taiwan. So 
I'll turn that over to you. Right. This is,、uh, in fact, what just happened this morning, and I believe this is a sign for Taiwanese government to really begin a more, you know, smartly think about their approach and their engagement with the Hong Kong government because they should know that the Hong Kong government or the leader. Of the so-called city is no longer、uh, representing the sole authority to make decisions for Hong Kong because, in fact, a lot of the decisions are now coming straight from Beijing. But what they also need to understand is that Hong Kong remains a very important commercial window and channel for a lot of the global investment into China. Maybe a lot of the times, including Taiwanese business that are, you know. Investing or even、uh, like registering on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, so the Taiwanese government will need to balance both the economic interest of the island, but at the same time remaining firm on the like bottom line they have they, that they have drawn since Taiwan came into power more than four years ago, which is that、uh, she will be open to. Dialogue and conversation with Hong Kong leader, the Chinese leader, as long as they don't intrude and also undermine Taiwan's sovereignty. But as we also know that because of Beijing's aggression and also the the you know the 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 boundary that they're pushing back against Taiwan's、uh, current government is that they will definitely reject any form of such a stance to launch any kind of dialogue like this. So. It's very likely that we will see the Hong Kong and Taiwan relationship at the government level basically drop to a very、uh, hostile or even just like, like almost like cold war kind of like no one's engaging with each other and the、uh, official communication could become much harder. But、uh, what we I think we also need to keep in mind is the civil society level interaction because that actually plays a very important role in、uh, cultivating and fostering the continued very strong tie between Hong Kong and Taiwan. These are two very vibrant and dominant, like a、uh, dynamic, you know, a society full of dynamics and、uh, people. In these places, are very I think well aligned on their goals and their ultimate interest. So what I think the Hong Kong government will not be able to completely cut off is the interaction and change exchanges between Taiwan and Hong Kong. But of course, if they decide to、uh, use the、uh, national security law to the、uh, most extent, then、uh, a lot of the interactions and exchanges could suddenly become you know illegal and、uh, even life. Imprisonment because Taiwan independence or Taiwan democracy or any kind of these related movement will be deemed as very 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 dangerous exchanges or even、uh, you know interactions in the eyes of Beijing. I've got another question here from Nicholas McLean. He was wondering whether or not you had looked at the PRC defense budget. And analyze kind of the new investments that they're making as some sort of indication about their intentions. So he said here, you know, have you studied the details of the defense budget for signs that a possible invasion of Taiwan is more than threats and rhetoric? And he cites here possible investments, say, in landing craft or things that they would need to undertake an operation like that. I think, in fact, the trend of the investment,、uh, at least in my knowledge, is that they've been、uh, really expanding and also modernizing their na- na- naval power and also their、uh, air force. And their, their naval power, it,、uh, you know, is right now a very key for whether they can take 
over Taiwan militarily uh, because of the fact that that's the first line of offense for them. If they wanted to take over Taiwan, they need to, first of all, uh, uh, take over the coastlines and then, you know, later on, uh, move further inland to uh, the capital, Taipei. But at the same time, uh, we also see that they have a lot of the anti-aircraft uh, missiles and also uh, other systems uh, in place in, you know, uh, in case that Taiwan decides to send its air force to as the first line of defense against the incoming invasion coming from China. So I think these are signs that China is keeping this as one of the top priorities that they wanted to keep at least keep the option of militarily taking over Taiwan open. And it's becoming more real with the frequency that they bring this up at important occasions and use it as a very major threat towards Taiwan. So, uh, but at the same time, there lies, you know, some complicated nature about how uh, realistic their, you know, like they could militarily take over Taiwan. There will be some uh, challenges that they will face, obviously, the al- mil- you know, military allies in the region. And Taiwan's key position on the first island chain is not just going to, you know, let China so easily take over Taiwan if they wanted to launch a military invasion. Um, so I wanted to ask you, we've had um, some kind of mentions of this in the Q&A box, kind of the perceptions of the United States right now and how the people of Taiwan are looking back at um, the United States, confidence in U.S. leadership, confidence in the focus of this administration uh, on the region. Obviously, COVID is something that we're grappling with in real time. We have not handled this well as opposed to how Taiwan has handled it exceptionally well. And we're distracted. We're going into an election. We've got uh, just enormous polarization across the United States right now. So are there concerns from the people of Taiwan? You look and you see, my goodness, the United States is completely consumed with its own politics and the pandemic. Or do folks feel like still this issue is front and center of U.S. foreign policy and our resolve is still there and that we're generally as a people united on our support for Taiwan. I mean, how do, how, how do you look at it sitting in, in Taiwan right now? So I think the consistent uh, support and also the amount of attention that uh, both the Congress and House and also the Trump administration have been given Taiwan over the last four years have, I think, basically convinced Taiwanese people enough that right now is probably at the peak of uh, the U.S.-Taiwan relations in history because we haven't seen so many legislations being introduced to advance, further strengthen the Taiwan-U.S. relationship uh, over the, the, the previous administrations. And so this is something that they see as a very encouraging sign that the Taiwan issue is not dropping off the agenda in the U.S., but also, of course, uh, as the uh, election comes up. And I, I think a, a lot of the Taiwanese people's uh, perception of the American government will also depend on the American government's position and policy against China. Because if the government in Washington continues to adopt a very, very strong and a stern uh, a position or uh, even a offense against uh, any Chinese uh 
actions in the region, uh, then I think Taiwanese people will have a lot more confidence in the fact that when it comes to China's uh, aggression against Taiwan, the U.S. will be there or at least consider uh, making some responses to ensure that Taiwan is not just going to be left alone dealing with China. So I think that's very clear. But at the same time, every U.S. uh, presidential election has been a very major issue here as well. Almost all the local media will be spending uh, the entire day following very closely about the trend and also uh, what's happening because of, again, Taiwan is relying on the U.S. on, uh, you know, to, to mean so much to both maintain its sovereignty, but also the international space that it will be given. So uh, what the U.S. has been trying to do during, over the last few months, I think earlier this year when uh, they were pushing for Taiwan to join the WHO, that also, again, reaffirms that people's belief that the U.S. is not ready. The U.S. is, in fact, uh, probably more committed to uh, helping and uh, defending and also safeguarding Taiwan than previous administrations. So this is probably like if the result of the uh, November election Either way, it will be very closely followed. And also people here will continue to call out to support from Washington whenever they can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, because we're a transatlantic organization, we've got offices on both sides of the Atlantic. We work with Europeans on a whole array of challenges in the Asia Pacific. I really want to come back to this question of Europe. And I, I feel like there's probably, you know, a collection of bits of good news and bad news. In some ways, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem like Asia is getting a lot more attention across the European continent than it ever has. And we've seen uh, more interesting trilaterals set up where Europeans and Americans and our friends in Asia are coming together to talk about a whole array of challenges across the Indo-Pacific and beyond. But there's some bad news too. But we've seen um, just most recently, there's been some reporting, for example, that the German foreign ministry removed the Taiwanese flag actually from the website. And as you noted in your opening remarks, some comments coming from Germany saying, look, we really can't take too many risks here given the value of this economic relationship we have with China. So we've got to be cautious and take a more conservative approach. I mean, how do you tell the story of what's happening in Europe broadly related to Taiwan and this friction with the PRC? I mean, do you generally see a trend line that gives you um, encouragement and, and you feel more positive about European engagement? Or do you see signs that really give you pause because you occasionally see leaders pull back under the pressure um, stemming um, from Beijing. So what's what's when people ask you to talk about it, when you write about it, what's your kind of overarching view of Europe's role in all of this? I think Europe is definitely a lot more complicated when it comes to its position on uh, China issues, but also Taiwan. What is very obvious is that there have been a lot more exposure for Taiwan over the last few years in uh, Europe because of both the economic ties, but uh, but at the same time, you know, individual countries and uh, even mayors of cities uh, have, you know, uh, in fact, uh, single-handedly begin to uh, strengthen and also uh, openly support Taiwan. Like, I think, take the mayor of Prague as an example. He has been probably one of the most vocal supporters of Taiwan, but at the same time, uh, rejecting uh, China 
as the partner that they should have. So I think what, in fact, uh, played out earlier this year when he decided to severe ties with Beijing and, uh, you know, built uh, the sister city a tie with Ta- Taipei, that is, I think, a very, like, I think, a uh, zeroed inversion of what is slowly happening in Europe is that one uh, individual countries, one after another, after their, I think they, they they run into serious challenges with their so-called partnership with China. You know, uh, the promised uh, investment never came, and also uh, when the even if the infrastructure projects were uh, being signed, then they realized that the contract was you know uh, putting them at a very very weak and fragile position. Uh, if once the whole contract or the construction is finished. So they realized that China may not always be a very reliable partner. But at the same time, Taiwan, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, have been uh, proving that it is a reliable partner that is very, very open to helping, but at the same time, exchange and very, uh, you know, like honest dialogue, like the masks that Taiwan have been offering and the the quality, the difference in the quality, uh, you know, of the mask from China versus Taiwan was very obvious. And government in each country and government in Europe is, I think, slowly to realize the benefit of uh, having closer or stronger ties where supporting Taiwan versus becoming a lot more cautious when they're dealing with China. So I think this trend needs to be highlighted. And of course, the Europeans, they have a lot more countries that they need to form a consensus. So at the end of the day, it will be a, a lot harder for them to take a very strong and decisive move against China. But at the same time, I think uh, these experiences, when they sit down and talk about how do they handle the issue in Hong Kong, the issue of you know dealing with China, or also like whether they should give uh, Taiwan more support when it's bidding for more participation in international organizations like the WHO, I think there is a very clear trend that European countries are slowly tilting towards giving Taiwan more support when they think Taiwan has a role that they it can contribute, but at the same time, do not completely severe ties with China because at the end of the day, engagement with China will remain very important for the international community if it wants to, you know, like not entirely left China, you know, off to do whatever that it wants. So I think the European Union is playing a very balanced, but also at the same time, like constantly adjusting their strategies. And we, it will be very interesting to see how they move forward as the bloc also will undergo some changes in, you know, individual countries' leadership. Because I think when Germany will, when, when Angela Merkel will have to step down in a year, Germany will be faced with a choice of who they choose to lead and the German leader will be, you know, looked up to by other member states in the European Union as setting maybe a tone or at least uh, setting a direction for the bloc in case of dealing with China and also Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I still have about two dozen more questions. We'll save it for next time. This won't be the last time that we include you in, in our important work. Thanks to everybody who was able to join us uh, today for this very special live podcast so we could include people with their questions. And thanks to you, William, for taking the time at a very late hour. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your courage and your determination to shine a light on everything that's happening in your neighborhood. There's so much ground to cover. We salute you for your efforts and uh, hope that we can stay in touch 
in the weeks and, and months ahead. All the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Telsenfreud. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.